0: Welcome to Chronicles, a podcast about real people with real stories, having real conversations on health. My name is Maya Olson, and I am a global health advocate based in Boston in the United States. I am a cancer survivor and someone living with a severe chronic immune disorder, and it is kind of hot and gross in Boston, but I'm so excited to be online with all of you. It's been a while since I think we've had all five of us online.
1: Hi everyone, this is Chantal Boyson, I'm a mental health advocate and I am connecting from Durban in South Africa. I also live with a mental illness and a lot of my advocacy is around that. I am an avid RuPaul drag race fan. I also wear a mask during COVID and COVID is not a conspiracy. <laughs>
2: It's no pandemic, (laughs) y'all. Zero pandemics going
1: on here. Hi, everyone. My
3: name is Joab, and I'm an industrial engineer living with kidney transplant. And my advocacy centers around organ donation awareness. And that's that's why I'm here talking about health and uh, hoping to make it better for people living with NCDs. But here in Kenya, it's actually really cold. We are in winter right now. So I'm in my sweats and my little Marvin, which is like a, a, a warm wool head thing.
4: <laughs> Hello, my name is Grace Katera. I'm from Kigali, Rwanda, and I am a lived experience mental health advocate. But more importantly, today I am optimistic. I am hoping that the vaccine for the cure before COVID has been found or is in the process of being made. I am hopeful that we're going to have a good week and I am, ho- I'm really thankful to be here with my friends for another podcast.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Michaela Newman. I'm a global health advocate uh, and policy researcher working in the field of digital technologies and artificial intelligence for the future of health and healthcare. I'm based in Geneva, Switzerland, but I come from the US and Canada, and ultimately, I think I've been sitting in the same room, in the same chair, for the last five months, surrounded by old sheets of calendar paper that I've cut out and taped on the walls to add color, so I joke that I've built myself a time machine, and I'm very happy to imagine a different Time from now, which we're gonna edit this out because that's not a funny thing to say. I don't know what I want to say.
0: I was gonna say I've never <laughs> resonated with someone's intro more because I'm I.
1: I. Not what.
2: Fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah, I am also sitting in a chair that I used before any of this happened, but it's like this dinky desk chair that. Um, I did not plan to be my home office in my bedroom for five months for one of the only entry points to the world. And that, I think, (laughs) links to what we're talking about, which is just in this world of COVID, which is real, very, very real, um, and very, very important because it's real for us to be social distanced and to be careful, especially kind of those of us with chronic conditions, We've gotten to travel, and we've gotten to see our friends around the world, and suddenly everything is virtual. Even my friends in Boston, a lot of what we're doing is virtual. Um, And so I think what we were going to talk about today was, was around how the world has changed in that sense, and how we're sort of accessing the world through screens, but also what are some of the... Disparities in connectivity? What are some of the ways that things can be more participatory because visas and travel challenges and those things have gone away in terms of advocacy or education or those sorts of things? So I know you felt like you were rambling, Michaela, but oh my gosh, do I hear you? Because I mean, <laughs> a lot of what I've done at work is virtual, half my team is in Africa. But I miss being in the office and I miss seeing people and it is this sort of strange reality that we're we're talking more across our colleagues and having more planned Skype dates or WhatsApp check-ins or those sorts of things with friends far away that I would ordinarily have waited to see (laughs) when I travel to wherever I travel, but it's also so disorienting.
1: And I do get sick of screens, and I miss sort of personal time. And... Oh, my God, Maya, yes. Sick of screens. Like, can I, can I just say that, first of all, the chair that I'm sitting on has completely formed the shape of my bum. So, like, like it's no doubt that I'm sitting on it at least eight hours a day, which cannot be healthy for, for any one person. And, and then... Screen fatigue. Mm -hmm. I literally want to vomit sometimes thinking I have to look at my actual computer because that's the only way that I can connect with my work. And, like, it gives me... I sometimes look at my screen and I cannot look at it anymore. Like, I have to leave the room. I have to leave my room. And it's... I don't know how you actually go past that. I don't know how you actually get better at that.
2: Can I share a ridiculous thing? I actually sniffed my chair the other day to see if it smelled good still <laughs> I was like I've just been, no I feel like I've just been like slowly melting into this chair and I it's hot and sometimes I sit in it after I exercise I was like I don't even know what this oh. chair smells like anymore it smelled actually very fine oh. luckily but I was like I'm just gonna sniff this chair because it's been holding my body together for so many months of 2020 <laughs> I need to discover what's going on at I-
1: it's insanity. I, I've never heard anyone smile at shame. Never.
2: <laughs> I love, I love to buy own it's, devices.
1: <laughs> it's only, only slightly peculiar. It's fine. It's it absolutely fine. And we love you for that. But it is a little weird. I'm not going to lie. It's a little weird. But we still love you. I think for me,
3: as I can resonate with all of you guys talking about being stuck in a room. So I live with my parents still and uh, my older sister and our daughter are here with us. So it's my parents and my older sister and my niece. And that's helped quite a bit because I spend a lot of time in my room, obviously on my screen, on my computer, doing social media campaigns and I'm always on Illustrator. I love Illustrator. I think the fact that it's art has helped me but then I'm always working on campaigns to kind of engage people on content that I don't know if they're still ready to engage because it's on uh, people living with entities, of course, and how to advocate for our rights during this time. But they've been keeping me sane. You know, at least they'll come knock on my door and they're like, how are you? Like, let's go out. My mom sometimes makes me popcorn and that that has helped me out quite a bit because I sometimes just stay in my room the whole day. And I think those small things, a Zoom call or what we're doing right now, you know, catching up on Skype, these small things online have really helped me kind of just adjust to the new normal, quote unquote. I don't know if this is the new normal yet, because in Kenya we're still we haven't yet flattened the curve. We're predicted to get there like the peak in September, October. So the cases are still going up here and we're kinda of nervous trying to figure out what to do because now people are trying to go back to to work because of the economy and that's when cases are going up. Mm-hmm. So I try and stay in my room more, I try and stay in the house more, but it's 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 a bit challenging. So I can I can resonate with everybody, you know, just the smallest things can, can make the biggest difference. But I've seen that taking breaks, I I have an app that helps me take breaks from my computer and that has been one of the things I would advise everyone to have. I think when you're on your computer, you can just kind of stay on your computer the whole time. But if you have an app that tells you, okay, it's been 25 minutes, it's been 30 minutes, maybe take a walk, maybe look outside, maybe go and grab some water, go talk to you know, go talk to somebody. That's been one of my coping mechanisms. Uh,
0: I need to do a better job of that. I used to sort of, I used to walk to work, and then I used to walk with my dog a lot around the neighborhood. We'd go on like a couple of mile walk. And right now there's no commute to work. And then my dog has been sick. So she only walks a couple of blocks um, there and, and back. And so I'm only out with her for 15, 20 minutes. And I realized that that chunk of time, those hour walks helped break up my day in a way that I have to recreate. And so I'm living with a roommate. We keep things pretty tight between the two of us. We don't have a ton of exposure, but... I started. I've had a couple of friends that we've expanded our little our little pod a little bit because they were also living alone. Or we have porches that people we can hang out outside, six more than six feet away, outdoor air, and just to see someone physically, like to see to be in the same space as someone instead of on a screen. I think this spring and summer has later spring summer when cases started going down in Massachusetts and we were able to come up with some of those safer solutions just made a huge impact on on my mood and how I'm feeling and Grace I'd be curious about you
4: yeah um it's interesting about what you said about staying in your room and like sort of getting online and stuff like that I think even before even before uh, pandemic, even before the quarantine, I spent a big amount, a big chunk of my time indoors uh, on social media. So this just feels like a continuation of what has already been a norm. And so I have to actively move myself or motivate myself to get out and get some fresh air and speak to people <laughs> and like actually be social. Another thing is that the more Like actual work you get done, whether it be like social media campaigns or or like attending meetings or or writing something or writing a blog, the more satisfied you feel. I don't know what it is. It's like you feel productive and you feel good. So I'm actively trying to stop tying my happiness or my mood changes to uh, how much I can get done, done at work or how much I can get done in a day. So that on the weekends I don't feel so empty, you know, <laughs> or I feel like I need my work or I feel like I need something to to keep me occupied. I am um, I'm spending my weekends now speaking to people and I had a, a fantastic call with Chantel where we like had a, a, like an hour long or hour and a half long conversation that did not include any work at all, and that felt refreshing to my brain. Yeah, and another thing is that uh, my sister and I have started Chloe Ting. She's on, on on YouTube, and she has free workouts. And so we are trying to tie our mental health mm. to our ability to work out. <laughs> I think that's healthier.
1: Uh, <laughs> so, yay, Grace! I love that so
4: much. She's hard. She's like, I, I was trying to to go easier myself and my sister. I was like, listen, we need to feel good, we need to feel good, we deserve it. And so and so that's exactly what we're doing. We're strategizing today. We're like, okay, let, let's get done with this. And but also the ability to have someone to do something with, even though even though it's it's a little thing like a workout, is is such a blessing and something I don't think I'll ever take for granted again. Mm. I thought I had was how every time I watch scenes in movies or or music videos or something that has people packed in an area, I feel like I like I feel a cringe. I feel like I feel terrified. I'm like, <laughs> what is happening? Why do I feel this? Like, what terrified for these people? This was
1: pre COVID. It's so it must be pre-COVID. Everything is yeah. gonna be pre-COVID. I hear, I yeah, exactly what you're saying, Grace. And I promise you, I also completely relate to, and I actually really appreciate that you said like how you're not gonna tie your happiness to the your productivity for work because I think that is that resonates so much with me as well because I I like I'm an avid to-do list maker, so every I've got a very active diary which I make notes in and every day is like there's some very explicit tasks that needs to be done so it I feel like often my life becomes a task kind of led by tasks and I don't allow myself the ability to actually think and plan forward as opposed to just plan tasks and not really plan my life or plan bigger things and I've also, had to actively take the pedal or the foot off the pedal to, to being the task master because it, it drives you insane. And, and also the other thing is it is the strangest thing because I live right by the ocean, right? And you'd think that living right by the ocean, I would be walking next to the ocean like every day. Right. But I it doesn't like I cannot it's the weirdest thing I told my partner the other day I think because I've been stuck in in the house for the last five months it's the it is the most difficult thing for me to actually put on my shoes and go outside and say well I'm gonna go for a walk now because it feels like it's such an effort to either see other people or to just get the energy to go for a walk or to get the energy to get out of the house and it's such a weird mentality and it's also, you have, have to be actively trying to undo that. because almost like you got comfortable with just being sitting on this one chair behind this one screen and doing the same routine every day because that's what you feel comfortable in and that's, that's kind of, that was your safe space. So it is kind of like rethinking what, you know, what, is, what are healthy things to do. And I still do stuff. Like I still ride bicycle over the weekend. We do mountain biking. But that's also because my partner drags me out of bed. You know, <laughs> he's like, he's really good at that. He's really good at kind of like dragging me out of bed because I also do need that. It's difficult to get out of the funk. And I think it's slightly different for him because he's a um, healthcare professional. So he goes to hospital every day. So nothing much has changed in terms of his like, daily life. So I think it's easier for him to adjust. I, I hear you, Grace.
2: You know, I have a question for you guys because um, since COVID, you know, the internet is an amazing thing because I subscribe to so many newsletters. And in one of the newsletters I subscribed to, there was a girl who was doing like ask an offer. So you could ask for a service or offer a service. And then the woman who ran the newsletter would try to facilitate connections. And I saw that a girl was offering five or a woman rather was offering five Free coaching sessions, and I wrote and I said, "Oh, I'd be interested in the life coaching uh, because the theme was about uh, identifying your desire and having the courage to go for it." So I met with, I got connected with this coach and started meeting with her over quarantine. And she would always ask me, "How do I feel in my body given everything?" and And I don't know if you guys have been able to actually sink into how your body is responding to COVID. But I find that I've been so in my head that when she asks me that, I'm like, I don't feel my body. I don't, you know. She'll say, "Is there somewhere in your body, like in your chest or in your in your breath, that feels tingly? Or do you feel heavy? Or do you feel light? Or do you feel?" And and you know, it's so much easier to describe a feeling: frustrated, sad. But I think it's it's actually quite a challenge for me, at least, to tap into. How my body has been responding to being in one place.
0: Absolutely. I For me, exercise was playing soccer, which is absolutely out. It was kind of hiking and doing outdoor sports stuff with groups of friends, which I can kind of do solo, but... Um, Haven't wanted to sort of leave state borders all that often. There's different restrictions traveling across states right now. And all the good hiking is in New Hampshire, Maine. And so that's out. I think one of the things that's been so disorienting for me with COVID is it seems like we both have all of the time in the world and no time at all. Um, There's like lots of thinking and processing time and I'm spending a lot of time sad and angry and upset and hopeful and thinking and just like in completely in my head by myself just like thinking 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 and yet I feel like I'm also not processing anything it's the same with with exercise I think all of the things that I was doing before I'm just not and so that's that's the biggest one where I think about like my legs hurt not because I'm using them but because I'm not and that is a really weird feeling for me being so active and I I wasn't paying as close attention to it until my dog got sick Mm -hmm. and now that I'm not even walking out with her every day then suddenly it's like oh I'm sitting in an apartment and not going anywhere so I'm trying to figure out how to build that in I really love what Grace is talking about like finding someone to exercise with my friend Amy who you guys all know she's in Liberia and her and a couple of her friends in Liberia who are staff at the hospital they have been working with this personal trainer and are doing these like intense workouts four days a week which is not anything that either any of them were that interested in before but with COVID it's been such a nice thing to kind of get out of the quarantine go outside and like push yourself to do something that's not thinking, or sitting on a screen, or kind of talking about how the world has changed, and and all of the heaviness to that. This is where the internet is
2: kind of fantastic, because I don't have a a workout in-person buddy, but like Instagram Live has so many different fitness things. There's Fitness Blender, which is free on YouTube, and it's a husband and wife. I've just subscribed to the Tone It Up app, which had a 21-day challenge, so every morning I wake up and do that. I bought a jump rope. I think that Having a trainer is great, but the internet also has your back on this one, or at least it has mine. Totally.
0: And yeah. I've been going to go play wall soccer, which just sounds so lame, but it's, I just like, I go and I kick a ball against the wall of a school, <laughs> and it's so nice, because I could like, hit out my stress against a wall. I'm not getting a ton of cardio, but like...
2: Well, and I know one of the things we wanted to talk about today is not just... What it's like to be in front of our screens or the activities that we're trying to introduce to be away from them, but also both the challenges of being hyper-connected and what that means during a pandemic where there's a lot of different information out there uh, and where we're trying to spread real news. Once again, COVID is real. But also what it means for the you know more than 3.5 billion people who are not connected and who are maybe still in that pre-COVID era of being unmasked in, in really busy spaces uh, because they can't take the distance from one another and they don't have access to these materials and they, they don't have an escape into the online world either. So I didn't know if that dichotomy or, or if that subject is something we still wanted to discuss.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think things that, that has been coming up for me recently, in South Africa at least there's been schools have been opening and closing and i think for children and for young people that's been incredibly difficult to navigate and i think for parents it's been excruciating because you know parents have become teachers and counselors and they also need to still be moms and they they have to do all of these things and they also need to to work and try and pay the bills so it's an incredibly stressful time and I think that children and young people are really going through a tough time I think that's why you know we talk about being connected and we're talking about being online too much but you know the reality is that there are a lot of people and a lot of young people who don't have any connection to to the necessary means and I think this is very evident when it comes to education and you know, that the lack of education and how education had to be very responsive to to the state that, you know, that COVID presented us. And it's, it's really difficult. It's difficult in countries where there are low resources. They, it's difficult in countries where connectivity isn't something that everyone has. There's a lot of inequality when it comes to, accessibility of data, of the internet, basic technology. And that leaves children and young people with a major disadvantage and it leaves them lagging behind. And there's been a, a lot of issues around that. And I, I think I've got a real, real concern around that because I don't, I don't see our governments or our leadership actually addressing that in a real way. That's really a, an issue for me because I think apart from the fact that it's going to affect education, it also impacts their livelihood and their health and their stress levels and anxiety. And I've been in contact with um, you know, some of our local um, university students that's also volunteering with the organization I work with. They're feeling very stressed out about all of this work that they get online uh, they, they don't really know how to manage online content. They they were used to going to classes. They've not learned how to manage their time and their schedules in this way. And it's been incredibly stressful for, for young people. And I, th- I think, you know, there's a case to be made for both ways. I think we, we certainly have, you know, Zoom fatigue and we have online fatigue, but there is also, this real big disparity in a big chunk of young people who don't actually even have the basic access to the internet.
3: Just just to add on to what you've said, Chantel, and also what Maya has said, you guys are alluding to the disruption of livelihoods, you know. And, you know, when Maya said that you you'd commute to work, you had your own schedule, and rather a routine. And for me, coming from a country like Kenya, I've seen that COVID has disrupted our livelihoods and for people who don't have resources to connect online or are not hyper-connected as Kayla has put it, it's led to a lot of young people just staying at home. For us in Kenya, they tried to do digital learning but very few kids or very few households were actually there for online or digital learning. So what has happened, even when moving around estates or the few green areas or park we have that are open, there's so many kids. Like, you can go to an estate or a suburb and you just see kids running around. And obviously, kids don't know how to social distance. So they're playing like they're on holiday. And it's so difficult to explain to a child, or especially a child, that... There's a there's a pandemic and you have to stay away and you can't keep kids in the house because I don't know keeping a kid in the in the house for months on end is good for their mental health so parents have been left with a dilemma especially parents who don't have green spaces parents in lower income households their their kids are just roaming around playing like like normal and the pandemic is is raging it's going on you know so it has created this very tricky dilemma for for parents or households with, with young children and we see it as we walk around or I went to visit my friend and they're just kids playing everywhere. And one thing that I would I would say, coming from a country where the, there are a lot of people who are lower income, is when you go to those areas, you see people living their life like nothing is happening. Mm. And I can't say it's their fault because Their livelihoods cannot be disrupted the way, I guess, the global health community is telling us we need to disrupt our livelihoods in order to protect ourselves. So, you can't tell someone who is dependent on their check day to day not to go to work for a week. It doesn't work like that. You know, the people are going to starve. So, what immediately happened is a lot of the churches and community centers are reaching out for food relief and that's what's been going on here is that the communities have been trying to combat to balance the effects of staying at home, but that wasn't enough. Even right now, we're, we're not on lockdown anymore, but when the lockdown was lifted, a lot of people left the city. People decided to go to the rural areas because in, in the rural area, in the farm, you can go and buy food cheaper, you know, cheap food is cheaper in, in the rural areas, but in that The exodus of people leaving the cities, the the pandemic or COVID was higher in the city. In Nairobi, we have so many more cases every day, and it was contained when those was a lockdown. But now people are leaving and and taking the virus with them. So Mm -hmm. it's it's created this dynamic where, I guess, people have started believing that COVID is a myth. There's this narrative, would we rather die of hunger or from the virus? It's a very tricky dilemma to be in because... It's, it's either you die from hunger because you're not working and you can't afford, you know, something as basic as food, or you have money for food, but you might get the virus and you possibly die from it.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I agree, Job, I, I can't agree with you more. And I think I honestly think that's that sometimes or a lot of the times, the the kind of dilemma that when we are talking about global health that people really forget about and I was part of a conversation recently at a global level, and they were trying to create very targeted approaches to kind of reduce receiving funding from certain organizations or certain companies, and um, that is seen as health hazardous or creating bad health. And I just felt like the way that it's been, the way that it's been approached was. I didn't feel like it was. Um, I thought it was very narrow, narrow in a sense that we often don't think about the fact that you know people on the ground, honestly, they need to survive and they're trying to make a living. And unfortunately, some of these companies, and I'm not uh, like I'm not for companies. I'm not condoning any companies that are are creating bad products and creating bad employment practices but i think i do think that you can't have a blanket approach to how people also earn a living unless you have an alternative because i think in a lot of communities people are living hand to mouth and they make a dollar a day or something ridiculous and there's no other alternative like it's the governments are Corrupt, and I'm sorry to say that because like they literally just steal money and they don't spend it on their people. And though some of those companies are the only result for some of those communities. Mm-hmm. And I find it that whole idea of what are you doing first? Are you providing somebody with the means to feed themselves? You know, they like also in the same breath tackling what they can eat so that they have better health. And I just feel like that whole idea, it gets kind of forgotten in the whole global health setting. When we talk about global health, you know, how do you actually get people to have an income? How do you get them to actually have sustainable employment? This is just something that came up recently, and I'm sure it has been discussed to a millionth degree. I just found out specifically in the... In the discussions around NCDs and a lot about the advocacy around NCDs and how we want to tackle it on a global scale, I think for me that that part has been quite neglected, hmm. and in a way that we need to approach it.
2: Well, I think to the points that you guys are raising, it has encouraged conversations around like universal basic income and what unemployment must be offered and extended to people during emergency circumstances like this. And I think, um, at least in countries like the U.S., which are predominantly built on the hero individual or the nuclear family, there is a new consideration of the welfare state and what that means. And I think for each of us, there are different, like the U.S. is not really a great welfare state. There are good models of it. Uh, in Europe, where we see that it, it works. But I do think it could lead to a stronger shift towards this thinking for these very reasons. It, I think it's a, a real call on on policymakers to look at, you know, the the commitments that they've made to around the SDGs and universal health coverage and the obstacles that so many of their populations face. And I think it's a decision of leaders to really look at whether or not they really want to put in the effort to create greater convergence, greater progress for everyone, which means taking different decisions, or if they are going to acknowledge that the decisions they are taking are leaving certain populations more marginalized and vulnerable than ever, and that includes with digital connectivity. And Mm -hmm. it's a real moment for for decision makers.
4: I I tend to be more on the cynical side when it comes to leadership, going back and reviewing bad commitments and stuff like that because of the continuous... I don't know if it's Chantelle who gave an example of lived ex- people with lived experience spending a whole day in meetings with government officials. I, I feel like it's you, Chantelle, who, t- who told this story. And then at the end of it, they, they you found out that they hadn't taken even one recommendation. And that's my thinking, at least around some African countries or some of our communities, because our policy or decision makers... Leave a lot to be desired, <laughs> mm-hmm. and this comes in in terms of especially now. I, I I tend not to talk very much about Rwanda because on the surface everything everything seems fine, and there's a little bit of a hold on information, so I don't know very much about what go, goes on internally. But I, I love to talk about Uganda. Uganda is one of those countries that looks like it's handling the the COVID. Crisis. It looks like they have it done. There's no community spread, at least there wasn't before today, and they've only had two people die, which is tragic. But in terms of the numbers that are out there, this is a phenomenal achievement, at least for four months. But when you look at, at the policies that I, they are so anti civil society. They are so anti regular residents. It's it's like they're doing everything in their power to make sure that. People do not survive this pandemic. Um, for example, they stopped motors, and I think for motors, there's a way to do things rightly. Of course, they they could increase the spread of the COVID crisis, but there's Rwanda has been doing it in a way that that looks feasible, right? But they have barred borders motor, or motors mm. from working, and then they're giving them penalties or sometimes confiscating their motors without any promise of returning back they've killed more people during curfew in enforcing curfew than have died during all of the actual covid situation and then there's there's also they because they they barred all vehicles from moving there was an increase in maternal mortality from preventable conditions like you know you know when they give birth <laughs> Um, there some complications that come around, and then you know they praise people who who have wheeled their loved ones in wheelbarrows, almost about to die, saying, "Okay, so we managed to take this to the hospital because we saw them moving a wheelbarrow." And you see this, and you realize that if they can come up with so many anti-regular population policies that do not even talk about mental health, that do, have not yet even touched mental health. Imagine their commitment to actual support for mental health or actual support for people who who are at risk. We have not even started to have that conversation. And so, I don't know, I I'm feel, feel cynical, but in, on the other hand, I also see the, the rise in pan-Africanism or mutual aid or, you know, support between regular citizens. And, and that's that's a good thing to do. But I, I still feel the support of our policy or decision makers is sorely missing at a time like this.
0: So much of what you're saying is so important. I think that line between despair and then hope around the activism and who's coming together, like everything everything is exposed to COVID Mm -hmm. and the interconnectedness of we all are global health advocates. But I think we all intrinsically knew this and there was lots of advocacy around poverty and social support and gender empowerment and and all of those things. But something COVID has has really revealed to everyone in such stark terms is you can't talk about health without talking about social protection or the economy or climate or racism or... All of these things that you were mentioning, Grace and Chantal, and, and we're seeing we're seeing death by public policy. We are seeing the decisions that are being made by governments. You can track the death rates. You can track directly where things are being successful or not being successful, and those global inequities across countries, across populations within countries. I read over the weekend the. The Poor People's Campaign, which is a report that was written in 2018, way before COVID. It was sort of reflecting on 50 years of, of Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign at, during the civil rights movement, which was trying to to merge the sort of interconnectedness of, of advocacy, advocacy network, the sort of interconnectedness between systemic racism, between poverty and then this report 50 years later was trying to make the connection with, with climate and the environment. And so much of what governments do is uh, through policies that exploit those vulnerabilities and those inequities. Everything gets worse for poor people. And I think you're seeing that with COVID and that so much cynicism and despair. And at the same time, I feel like there's this sort of people are are kind of banding together across the different constituencies in a way that I haven't seen. which it's time. There's enough There's enough that's messed up about this world, but there's this sort of through digital accessibility. I'm coming back, I promise. There is this opportunity for more participation if we do it right, if we actually listen to what people are saying, if we build not just getting people onto a Zoom call, but figuring out how to actually hear people's voices and translate that to recommendations and We have a government that listens great, a lot of people don't. So what are ways to to push forward real change at lower levels of the government or in other directions? Through the littlest of things, we've been doing a webinar series, and it's been great to have more people on a call than we could ever get in an in-person meeting. But at the same time, I know really well that without staff being able to go to our office people are at home and may or may not have data or bandwidth. Mm-hmm. We have a, a, a patient advocate in Rwanda we work with closely who has rheumatic heart disease. He's just finished his medical degree. He hadn't been able to join a single webinar, but he's one of our most kind of engaged voices. And so to get him to, to be able to speak, we wired him money for data to be able to sort of jump onto, onto 3G. That was great, but he didn't get to kind of be part of the rest of the conversation. And his voice in this series was more important than so many people who do have access to it, to bandwidth. And so Mm -hmm. trying to, I don't know where I ended up, but it's, it's, there's so many, (laughs) there's so many challenges that are interrelated with all of this.
1: Yeah. Maya, I completely agree. And I, I, I wanted to add to that because I think for me, something that has come up quite a lot in program development especially when you are, you know, doing applications for funding and for grants. And there's been a lot of disruption of projects and programs on the ground and how it's been executed and implemented traditionally. And to almost ensure that all of the funding that goes towards some of these projects include a minimum of access to data, you know, funding towards data or funding towards giving for people access to be able to be online. So whether that is specific portion going towards technology or towards just basic data, that, that, should, that should automatically form part of any program development. And I've certainly seen it now with the programs that we have had to rework and re-strategize in South Africa and specifically with young people and how we are doing our mental health interventions. And some of our projects have come to a complete halt, which has been really disruptive um, just because the schools are closed and the teachers are completely inundated. they overworked, stressed, and they don't know how to manage everything. Again, it's kind of reinforcing we have to really or redesign how we do interventions, but we also need to we also need to make sure that people who are benefiting from the interventions actually have access to it too.
2: Well, and Chantal, to, to add on that and to an earlier point that you made around education is that where we improve access to connection and to technologies, we also need to make sure that there's digital literacy and, and that that's kind of part of the program design as well because to your earlier point, it takes a long time for someone to become comfortable with these tools. So once they're connected, it also becomes a question of how to distinguish good information from bad information. What are good news sources? Uh, How do you protect your identity online? And a number of other questions that are being discussed a lot right now because of, you know, even the whole thing around digital identities. Like if we talk about the welfare state, to what degree, you know, is a digital identity important? It's how you get your birth certificate. It's maybe how you maintain an electronic health record and all of these things. And and that opens up a lot of new questions. One of the big debates is this idea of immunity passports right now. And there's been huge pushback here with the, the WHO, you know, saying they don't advise for that. Because suddenly you're taking decisions based on a few data points and you're restricting movement and all of these things. So I think understanding what it means to go online is as important as the connection itself.
3: I I agree with you, Kayla. I actually thought of a, a really good example here here in Kenya. A few years back, we had a program that attempted to give kids in rural areas tablets so that they could learn digital liter- literacy and be able to connect in a world that become very digital, very online. And though the concept was, was good, very few kids had the their tablets or iPads, I think three or four months later, just because oh. the way they did it was the one day shop with all these tablets and give kids and take photos and it was it was really nice to see. But then the implementation wasn't done well. Mm. A lot of these people in rural areas still don't have access to reliable electricity. So their deeper the deeper issues we need to tackle coming from a country that obviously has a lot to improve on. So I think in as much as I agree that a lot of our solution would need to focus on online and, you know, getting everyone to access, especially the most vulnerable people who their voices need to be heard are in places that are marginalized and very far from a grid or from communication. It's it's something that our leaders need to really go to the root root cause because, I guess, Kenya, we we found out that a lot of people don't have access to reliable electricity. So even though the government disruptively brings technology to the most marginalized people, then how are they going to charge these? That program didn't do so well, even though the idea was good because the leaders didn't think beyond the technology Mm. and the literacy they just thought, okay, we'll give them these tablets and they'll be able to connect and they'll be good. But it didn't work like that. You had to now go back and realize, okay, we need to supply these people with electricity so that they'll be able to now start getting technology and connecting to the rest of the world.
2: I think that's often a pitfall of technology is it's so readily and easily presented as the solution, but often that's not the case or that the case is more nuanced than that where There needs to be more of a proactive investigation rather than a reactive one like we saw with the mostly useless digital contact tracing with COVID to look at, okay, what's the issue and how does technology help us address that issue versus, oh, technology is the answer. Let's just give every kid a tablet. I think that that's still something that policymakers and the big tech and and even humanitarian and development organizations who are using technical solutions you know, as they advocate for connectivity, which, you know, I think we all agree is is incredibly important. What happens next is super, super important as well, once people are connected.
1: I think, I think for me, it's also a case of, and Job, those concerns, I promise you, like we have them in South Africa, we have them too. And I, I might be hopping on about this, but I think something that I've been aggravated by recently, by specifically our government, is that we have once again seen so much fraud, so much corruption. We have this thing called uh, the COVID gate, where there's been massive scandals about contracts being mismanaged and there was nepotism. And it aggravates me so much because... The amount of things we can do with the money that gets squandered and stolen by people—it makes me so angry that I, like, I go blind. I, like, I can't believe that people would do that. Because again, it keeps our poor even poorer, and it keeps people just in the same space. And in fact, they're just becoming poorer and poorer because there's no opportunity created because there is no money towards infrastructure which means we also have power disruptions there's still people in in communities that don't have basic sanitary and sanitation schools that don't have toilets in your life have you ever that we still in this day and age have schools that don't have toilets you know those things aggravate me incredibly but i think for me how i see especially countries that don't have that have the these struggles versus countries who don't have those struggles is that the development of our young people in terms of educational development and, and being able to be connected to better opportunities and, and learning in a way that our world is geared towards that that becomes incredibly and increasingly difficult because it means that young people can't in those settings can't learn in a way that the world needs them to learn. Because the, the world is geared towards being digital and being online. And there's different jobs that are now being created and different ways of creating income is now being created. It's not just your traditional forms of careers that is that exists still. There are so many other nuanced careers that's being developed and and jobs and opportunities For me, the the bigger picture here is that the less we are trying to fix the technology element or not even high tech, it's basic access to the internet and to basic forms of being able to learn and investigate things on your own on the internet and also having access to something that is more accessible, that is how we are going to actually improve our education system and how are we going to increase and improve young people who come through our education system especially in this country keep on talking about empowerment of young people and you know you have to get them education i'm like but you're not giving them the right education Mm. how are you empowering young people if you are not giving them the right education or the right tools to be educated because this disparity uh, it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and i foresee a massive like it's just the heavy thing that i can see happening in the future they'll just be lagging behind a lot and our young people are not learning the skills that they need to be able to go into the future of this world
0: Or if, I mean, Michaela kind of referenced this before, if the information's incorrect. I I don't want to get into a a whole partisan thing about the U.S. I think anyone who knows me knows what what side of, of U.S. politics I sit on. But there's a whole half of this country that's getting where the whole threat of COVID is getting minimized in in what they're receiving through media, through the through online. There's influencers who are having parties in LA that a lot of young people follow who like there's there's so many there's so many social elements to what's what's going on in the way that we're sharing information that education and the pieces that you're talking about are so important, but then also the sort of social media aspect of the images, the influences, the information, whether it's verified, what's the political intent behind that information. There's such a polarization in the U.S. at baseline, but with COVID, there's such a polarization around who's taking it seriously. And I think... I don't know that it's exceptional to us, but the fact that public health information has become politicized is just—it's—it's mm-hmm. un- it's unbelievable for us sitting in public health. But it's also just so frustrating,
2: and so it's also uh, impossible to manage with the resources we have. Big tech and other industry can put so many—or well, not even big tech, but the big tech that hosts these people who are, you know, anti-vaxxers or pandemic believers, you know, organizations like the WHO do not have the resources to be doing all of this risk communication at this time. And it would take a lot of effort to start to combat this. So what other types of governance do we need to protect good information to make sure that people can access it, you know, and while there are concerns about the infringement on free speech, which is definitely a debate on its own. There do need to be places that people can go for reliable information and there's there are a lot of different things competing for people's attention that will divert them and it can, they can create these black holes. I mean in work that I've looked at depending on who you follow on Facebook or where you get your news your network might be so far away from good sources of information that WHO might never reach you with its communications, and, and or the CDC, or anything like that. So it's definitely something that I think a lot of policymakers are becoming more aware of, especially when it comes to critical information like public health. I mean, when it comes to the wearing of masks, for instance, this has become huge, the, the debate happening.
4: I mean, for me,
0: COVID is hard. Everything's connected, and we're both overly connected and also not getting the right information and and there's disparities within that we've covered so much it's hard to even connect all the dots but it's been a really helpful conversation to think about things i don't have as much exposure to and the u.s is in its own little crazy universe so it's important to hear how how things are happening in kenya and south africa
2: and actually my maybe Mm. as a, a final line what i would say is I think I shared something with you a little while ago within the group WhatsApp. There's this notion that young generations see problems as networks. They don't just identify an issue and tackle it, but they want to look at the root causes. And I think what we're seeing today is a great example of how we need networked solutions to networked problems. I really love that.
4: I really love what you said, Michaela. I think that's that's our thing. Our generations we're holistic people. We like looking at the whole at the whole thing. Not mm-hmm. just one last Ooh, fabulous.
1: Yay. It's great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Lots of cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks
0: everyone for listening to another episode of Chronicles. We really appreciate everyone who's been following the podcast over the last couple of months. You can find all of our episodes, including this one, on Apple, Spotify, and all of the regular podcast listening apps. You can also find us at our website at chronicles.podiant.co, which is chronicles.p-o-d-i-a-n-t dot c-o, or on Twitter at chroniclepodcst. You can also reach out to us on, on email at chronicleshealthpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you again on the next episode.